From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Today, we are talking with Virginia Eubanks, who is an associate professor of political science at SUNY Albany and author of the book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor. And so, you know, in in some ways, this this book is very much about technology and and how it's it's used across government but it really i think also speaks to a, some deeper issues about democracy and inequality that have really been going on as long as democracy has been around or at least as long as as US democracy has has been around so it's it's interesting to to think about that the kind of juxtaposition that way you know one question that i think comes up a lot in critical policy studies just kind of an area of, of of policy and political science that i think about is you know what allows democracies like the united states to produce so much inequality and i think there are many answers but one that i've really been focused on uh is that you know in a democracy public opinion should to some extent get turned into policy and legislation. Um, and, you know, our values get turned into policy and shape what we think should happen. I think in the United States, Americans also have values around individualism, uh, egalitarianism, but also they have a disdain and suspicion, suspicion for poor people that also gets turned into policy where those people who are living in poverty are allocated particular kinds of policy, usually paternalistic policies with lots of strings attached, um, might be difficult to access. Meanwhile, the people that we love and view as deserving, middle-class people, homeowners, uh, business, uh, what do you call them? Job creators. Um, uh, You know, they get the good stuff. And, you know, so I think it's really important to think about the extent to which democracies are willing to the citizens in a democracy are willing to tolerate inequality, right? Um, if our values get turned into policy. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. And I think that's uh, a really interesting question. I also think that the roots of that question center on this distinction, which you're you're kind of implicitly drawing between the deserving and the undeserving poor. And that is a distinction that goes back hundreds of years, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think at one point there is something very fundamental. I mean, at a very human psychological level, the idea that if you are uh, not going to contribute um, we don't, I mean, I'm working hard. Why aren't you working hard? Right. Mm-hmm. If you will not, you know, if you will not work, you will not eat. That's in acts, I think in the Bible. Right. So at some level, I think that's true. And, and it's just a function of an inevitable function of human psychology. However, it's also a very, very difficult to make that distinction, um, constructively and accurately and B, it inevitably involves our uh, human biases as well. Mm-hmm. And so more often than not, well, almost again, inevitably, you end up tagging 
a certain portion of the population as being de facto undeserving. And, 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 and here we are, right here we are in, and, and, um, Eubanks book is just probably the most recent way in which those biases, those distinctions are manifest. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're touching on is that we tend to think about poverty as a character flaw um, and that there's something morally suspect about people who are living in poverty rather than thinking about it as circumstantial or as the outcome of a policy, right? I mean, I'm going to say this a thousand times, but inequality is a policy choice. So even this business of AI um, and um, algorithms is not necessarily a technological revolution, but instead is an evolution of the way we implement policies around around poor people. You know, we usually associate these, you know, technology and AI and algorithms with Google and Facebook and you know, how they direct our news feeds and our consumer attention, um, or we think about predictive algorithms for crime, for sentencing, recidivism. But we see that these systems are also being used for social safety net systems. Who gets food assistance? Who gets who gets to keep their kids? Who Which kids are going to a foster system? And I just, I'm really fascinated by the extent to which we're willing to allow computers to do the hard work of complicated human thinking um, and no less empathy on these issues. There's there's two sides to that. I mean, on the one hand, it's just simply true that AI, big data, the evaluation of, you know, through algorithms of data can produce strategies that are grounded with more accuracy and do it cheaper. So it's not crazy to think that, uh, or to at least explore the idea of whether these, um, these, these technologies could have some kind of uh, positive impact on public policy. If the information that we're putting in the system is biased, then the answers that we're going to get out is biased. And, you know, it's it, it may be cheaper, but the the it may be financially cheaper. But we have to figure out what what the cost is for the human cost, I guess we, yeah. we would say. And yeah, I mean what what you just said, Kenneth, I think is really the central question or the the central paradox that Virginia explores in her work. So I think this is a good segue into the interview. Here is my conversation with Virginia Eubanks. Virginia Eubanks, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Jenna, thanks so much for having me. So Virginia, learning uh, about your work and coming up to speed on it in in preparation for this interview has been really eye-opening for me. And I think our our listeners will find it to be uh, eye-opening as well. If I were to draw a Venn diagram between podcast listeners and the people who utilize a lot of the social services and things that you write about, I'm going to guess there's not a whole lot of overlap there. Um, I think that that's maybe a, a a point that you you draw as well. So, you know, I'm wondering how this topic of inequality in government and government adjacent social safety net systems, how this came on to your radar and, and what were some of the questions you were looking to answer? 
Well, so I was, for a very long time, a welfare rights organizer. And so in some of the early work that I did, we talked a lot about technology in our work. And I found that um, surprising. And one of the things that was sort of going on at the time was this sort of idea uh, that there was a digital divide. So this is quite, uh, you know, early in internet time. So this is like 2000, um, which is not that long ago as a 50-year-old woman, but in internet time is a thousand years ago. So back in 2000, I was working with a community of women who lived in a residential YWCA in my hometown here in Troy, New York. And we were doing a lot of different work. We're doing a lot of sort of community engagement work around um, welfare rights. Uh, We're doing a lot of sort of community co-education, popular education work. And we're also building technology resources in the community. So we talked about technology a lot. And one of the conversations that I think of as sort of an origin point of automating inequality is this afternoon that I was sitting and talking to a woman I'd worked with. Uh, for some time about the role of technology in her life. She goes by a pseudonym in the book, Dorothy Allen. So Dorothy and I were sitting and talking about tech. And one of the things that had sort of recently happened was the implementation of EBT cards, electronic benefits transfer cards, which are sort of ATM-like cards that you receive public benefits on. So if you get cash assistance or childcare um, allowance or food stamps, they now show up on your EBT card rather than getting paper stamps, for example. And so we're talking about our EBT card. And I said, you know, Dorothy, I, I hear that some people really like these. There's like a little bit less stigma in the grocery store. Maybe you're not pulling out paper food stamps. It's a little bit more convenient. And she said, yeah, you know, some of that's true. Um, But also it's made it so that there is this digital record of all of my purchases. And and because they have a record of all of my purchases, they also have a record of many of my movements. So I like go to talk to my social worker. My social worker will ask, for example, like, well, why are you spending all this money at the corner store? Don't you know it's cheaper at the grocery store? And I must have had this super shocked look on my face, this very naively shocked look on my face, because she kind of looked at me for a minute and she laughed at me. And then she got more serious. And she sort of put her hand on my knee and she's like, oh, Virginia, you all should be paying attention because they'll come for you next. And so Dorothy is always in the back of my head when I'm doing work about technology for a couple of reasons. One is that I thought that was an incredibly generous thing. Like Dorothy wasn't just looking out for Dorothy. Like she was dealing with the complications of her own life and also worried about what was going to happen to other members of the community. And then the second thing that I think is so important about that conversation is it showed me that if you really want to get at the sort of cutting edge of many of these technologies of state, uh, you know, ones that governments use, that you need to go to places what, that I sort of refer to in the book as low rights environments, places where there isn't a strong expectation that people's rights will be respected. That's where they sort of experiment with these tools. So not just poor and working class communities, though public assistance certainly offers a lot of opportunities for this kind of experimentation in ways that are, I think, really troubling. But also in migrant communities, communities of color, um, you know, religious minorities, we see things like digital surveillance, for example, um, be tested in these communities first. 
Um, and so I think if you really want to know what's going on, you have to start with the people who are most affected. And so that's a, sort of the germ of all of this work comes out of that conversation with Dorothy. Uh, now, 20 years ago, actually, it was August of uh, 2000. So like exactly 20 years ago. So, Virginia, as we think about the, the evolution of these technologies over the past 20 years or so, you know, I think it's perhaps inevitable in, in some ways that, of course, the government and, and government's kind of related agencies would, would start to use them. But I guess, is it also inevitable that we had to end up in this place where these technologies are being used for surveillance and to create or exacerbate inequalities in, in society? Yeah, so absolutely not. I think we often think about technology as, uh, you know, inevitable progress. There's nothing you can do to stop the progress of technology, right? But technologies are human tools and we shape them. Um, and in fact, one of the ways that I like to think about technology, one of, the, one of the reasons I find it so interesting to study it and write about it and report on it is because technology really is just our social relations made concrete. So the sort of structures of our society manifested in this object, in this, this artifact. And so I think that's one of the reasons why they're so interesting uh, to study, to look at, to, to, to think about. So uh, absolutely not inevitable that any of these tools would end up designed, implemented uh, in the ways that they were. And in fact, I think you can see that really clearly in the book, in the Indiana case, which is the case of a $1.16 billion contract to modernize the eligibility process for the state's welfare programs. Um, I think that case shows really clearly that there's nothing inevitable about the shape these technologies take. Because three years into a 10-year project, the people, the, the citizens of, of, of Indiana, they go by the great nickname, the Hoosiers, um, shut that system down. Um, so there was so much public pressure um, since a million applications had been denied in the first three years of that project, like a 54% increase um, in, in denials from the three years before the project, that the people of Indiana just sort of rose up, organized, had these incredible town hall meetings where they came together to talk about their experiences, put enough pressure on the governor that he caved and canceled the contract three years into this 10-year um, experiment. Um, so there's no, absolutely nothing inevitable about the way these tools end up uh, working. So is that political aspect of these systems, is that obvious to the people who are responsible for implementing them? Or is that something that's kind of in in their minds? Or is it more just a lot of like bureaucratic Kool-Aid drinking about how what these, these systems might be able to bring to their particular offices? Yeah, I think it's a mix. So I did more than 105 interviews for the book. I talked to a lot of different people, including policymakers and designers and software engineers and sort of all the folks working in the background uh, alongside families who were most affected by these tools. And, I, you know, they come from really different places. Like politically, they all believe very different things. In general, though, I'll say uh, almost to a person, everyone I spoke to was very smart. Um, everyone I spoke to in, in government and, and these agencies was, was very smart, was very committed to the well-being of the people that their agencies serve and really were trying their best. 
And one of the things that was really interesting to me is that though the the sort of professional folks I spoke to were really diverse and came from really different places, sort of to a person, every one of them talked about these tools as doing a kind of digital triage, meaning there aren't enough resources for everyone. And we have to make these incredibly difficult decisions about who should get access to, say, housing in Los Angeles, right? Uh, Los Angeles has one of the largest housing crises in the country. Something like 50,000 people are unhoused. I think more now than 50,000 people are unhoused in Los Angeles County. That's my entire town. Is, is homeless in LA. And they have incredibly limited housing resources. But when you use the language of triage, what it makes you assume is that those shortages are temporary and that they're natural, that they're inevitable. So when we talk about triage, we're usually thinking about like medical care after a natural disaster or during war. So it's really only appropriate to talk about triage if the problem is short term, if the problem's temporary, and if there's more resources coming. If there aren't more resources coming, then what we're actually doing is digital rationing. And that's quite different than triage. So one of the things I really wanted people to think about when they read the book was, are these um, shortages that we talk about as being inevitable in our public assistance systems? Are those actually inevitable or are those political choices? And I think it's really quite easy to look outside the United States and see other systems that are much more generous and much less punitive that have very different outcomes than our system does. And this idea to triage at all, to use technology to make these incredibly difficult decisions about like who gets access to housing, who gets access to food, whose children stay with their families and whose children are put into foster care. The fact that we're willing to think of those as systems engineering problems rather than as human rights problems actually says a lot about us as a country and about our sort of deep politics of uh, the way we think about inequality. And, and that I find really troubling. I find it really troubling that we're willing um, to let technology serve as a kind of empathy override that keeps us from taking responsibility, the responsibility we have to take care of each other. It keeps us from fulfilling that. The other thing that we're, we've been hearing a lot about since the start of COVID-19 is, is people, you know, spending eight hours a day trying to get through yeah. to their state unemployment offices and about these systems that are so woefully out of date, um, be, you know, that they can't keep up with, with the demand. And I, I, I found myself wondering, like, is some of that intentional? Where does that piece of things kind of fit into this, this, this bigger picture? So this is why there's the, the book about very fancy, sparkly new technologies starts with a history of poverty policy in the United <laughs> States, because I think this is one of the great misapprehensions that people who have not had firsthand experience with the public benefit system in the United States don't get, right? One of the key pieces of misinformation is the idea that the system is supposed to work. <laughs> um, the system's brokenness is built into the system and it always has been. So I go back in the history of uh, the United States to the early 1800s to talk specifically about like one of the new technologies of the time of poverty regulation of the time, which was the brick and mortar county poorhouse. 
And the poorhouse was basically an institution that served to incarcerate people who asked for and um, received public benefits of any kind, food support, fuel support, cash. So what you had to do was you could be arrested and sentenced to the poorhouse for anything from vagrancy, which is homelessness, or begging, or if you were a woman for having sex outside of marriage, you could be sent to the poorhouse. So that's how you would end up there. So very, very early in our history, we decided that poverty is a problem of morals, that uh, in most cases, people are capable of work if you force them to work, that it's not structural problems that keep people from being able to support themselves, and that the most important thing that a public service system can do is sort of separate the deserving from the undeserving. Um, so the deserving get a little bit of support and a lot of, uh, you know, instruction in how to be a better, supposedly better, more productive person. The unworthy were sort of cast out or incarcerated. And that is, I think of as sort of the deep social programming of the systems that we see today. So the systems are set up not intentionally, right? There's no half a dozen guys in a smoky room twiddling their mustaches, right? Being like, mwahaha, this is how we can do it, right? But there is this deep, deep, deep set of beliefs about poverty in the United States that are baked into these systems, both the in-person systems and the technological ones that say, like, it is more important that we identify the five cases in a hundred of fraud, um, for example, rather than making sure that the 75% of people who are eligible for these benefits, but don't get them, that it's more important to chase down the potentially fraudulent person than it is to make sure those 75 people who aren't getting the benefits they're eligible for get them, right? So it's all about these choices that we make as a community, as a political community, as a society, uh, in the way that we think about and understand poverty that show up in these systems. Uh, you know, that we have digital systems that do exactly the same as unemployment that work perfectly fine, right? Social security works great, didn't break, right? The pandemic doesn't matter. It has direct deposit. You know, we pay taxes. Everybody paid their taxes. It was a little late, but that system worked just fine, right? Because, right. you know, the government wants to get their money. But these other systems um, that have all of this sort of, all these layers of moral diagnosis layered onto them, those are the systems that really break down when you put any kind of pressure on them. And while I don't think that's intentional in, in the terms of like, I don't think that's individuals making conscious decisions to make it work that way, it is a systemic problem that we continue to refuse to address. And if you continue to refuse to address a problem long enough, it does become a kind of complicity, if not intention. One of the great myths of well, you know, welfare, public assistance, public benefits, however you want to talk about it, is that they're really only accessed by a tiny percentage of probably pathological people. The reality is, if you look at Mark Rank's extraordinary life cycle research on poverty, 51% of us will be below the poverty line and a full 64% of us will access means-tested public assistance. So that's straight welfare programs. That's not social security or unemployment. That's 
cash assistance, food assistance, uh, housing assistance, heat and uh, home heating assistance, that um, childcare assistance, that kind of thing. You know, it's it's not like uh, this sort of like mythical other people who are receiving this, this assistance. It's us. It's almost all of us. Um, and we should have a commitment to making these systems work better for each other. But I don't think we can do that while we continue to hide behind the sort of neutral face of technology and be like, oh, we can't make better decisions. The computer says no. Like we have to really grapple with that ourselves and make those changes as a a political community. What has the response been from government organizations or from people who are are responsible in some way for for the creation and and, uh, implementation of these systems? Are are they hearing this message or is it kind of getting through to to stakeholders at all? Yeah, well, it's been a mixed bag. In terms of response from agencies, from the people who built these tools. Another one of the things about asking people to go on record is that I felt really strongly as a journalist that they should be advised of the progress of the project all the way through. There are some people I really, really admire uh, who designed some of these systems that I ended up writing um, that I was really concerned about them, that I was really concerned that these systems were going to hurt people, were going to make communities and families vulnerable. And they clearly didn't agree with me on that. And so we had some really challenging conversations around that. The only folks who did not choose to talk to me again were the folks in Allegheny County. Uh, And they, um, you know, sort of released a a press release um, saying that they sort of disagreed with my reporting and my and my conclusions. But overall, the conversations I had, um, you know, at worst, we decided we disagreed a little bit on tactics, but basically we still felt like we were on the same side. Um, and at best, I've gotten just this incredible outpouring of letters from people um, or emails or phone calls from people who have had these interactions with the systems and really felt like their experience was confirmed by reading the book or coming across an interview mm-hmm. I gave. Um, I think one of the things that the public system does that most enforces stigma is it makes us all feel like we are the only person who has ever had trouble with the system and makes us feel like maybe it's our fault. Maybe we're doing something wrong. And so I think it's so important to make these stories visible because when these stories become visible, when we have these conversations, we start to see the patterns. And once you start to see the patterns, you realize it's not just you, right? That the system is set up in a really specific way that makes it very hard for you to get access to the things you're entitled to, makes it hard to care for yourself and care for your family, um, and that we could do better. Right. So what what can listeners do, uh, you know, particularly folks that might not have direct experience with these systems or this all just may be kind of, kind of opaque to them right now in terms of, of how they might actually be able to, to make an impact? Yeah, so um, so much of this is local. Um, One of the things that is also really complicated about our public assistance system in the United States is that it's federally funded, but locally run. So the systems is one of the real researching and reporting challenges too. Often, even every municipality has a different system than neighboring municipalities. So it's really hard to figure out how these things are working. But the kinds of things particularly post-pandemic, that I would encourage people to pay attention to is 
things that things like uh, concerns about fraud, waste, and abuse in, say, the unemployment system um, in the last year, right? So there's been this problem of lack of access, of people not being able to get the benefits that they're entitled to because the systems have been sort of failing so badly. But there's also been, which I think is really good at this moment, um, a relaxation in some ways of the really careful um, vetting they do of applications uh, which is good because it's lowered barriers for people to get access to benefits that they need to, to stay safe during the pandemic. However, I would encourage people to pay attention once things start to return to normal a little bit. We now have this incredible data set of people's applications for public benefits um, that you can run algorithms on after the fact to see if perhaps someone you believe someone's been overpaid or somebody maybe got uh, a benefit in the like starting from the wrong place. They should have applied at, at X place and they applied at Y place instead. And because everything was so crazy, they went ahead and just released the benefits. And so I think there's probably going to be a lot going on around what's known as overpayment debt. So this idea that if you accidentally are overpaid a government benefit, you not only owe it back, but it, it is a debt that can, can be collected by the federal government by, say, keeping your tax refund or keeping a portion of your social security check. And unfortunately, often these algorithmic uh, estimations of overpayments are wrong are simply just just that the technology or the algorithm itself is incorrect. Um, so we're going to need to pay really close attention to that as the pandemic lifts. Mm-hmm. And I think with the experiences that I hope that with the experiences so many more people are having with these systems right now, my uh, my best advice is to know you're not alone, to know you are in really good company as you struggle with these systems and to come together with other people with similar struggles, because it's the only thing that's ever changed these systems. The only thing that's made them more just, more equitable, more generous has been people getting together and demanding change. Well, Virginia, we will uh, leave it there. Thank you for this book. We will link to it in the show notes. And thank you for taking time to talk with us about it. Thanks so much for the great conversation. I really appreciate it. So, uh, Candice, the, the thing that I found really striking and I think accurate is her distinction between triage and rationing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the folks that are doing this work uh, who are on the front lines talk about it as triage, and triage means you're saving the people who you can save when you have only so many physicians, whatever, right? It's 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 actually from um, from the military, from from war. And her argument is that n- no, that's not the right metaphor. This is just saying we only have so much public resources that we're go- willing to commit to this problem, and therefore that means we're going to have to ration it. And I mean, I think that is why so many in government at the state level, especially, are interested to want to, to want to pursue this question of AI and technology, because their hope is that they can get that they can do this cheap, more cheaply, that they can d- deliver these services more cheaply. And so that is their orienting objective right? We're going to, this, this is taxpayer money. We're going to be responsible 
to that. We don't want to waste those resources. And here is a way for us to deliver those services, those same services, but do it more cheaply, do it more efficiently. Yeah. I mean, I think that the way this gets framed to the average person is that we need to allocate scarce resources. And I think even that frame is misleading because what we do is we allocate resources based on our priorities and based on our values. If we expect what the people want to be translated into policy, then that's what we're getting. I think, you know, some of the things that you, you, you've you mentioned here and what Virginia talked about earlier is that people, you know, the, this kind of neoliberal ar- argument that we need to maybe if we can shift it to the market, if we can privatize, we can try to find more efficient ways um, of saving taxpayer dollars. But we also see that <laughs> if the, the, these systems aren't necessarily effective, or, or, or let's say they're not effective in getting people out of poverty. One thing I've learned is that Americans are willing to allocate bad policy, punitive policy to people that we view as bad and good policy to people that we view as good. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we're willing to use resources to punish people or to create and sustain bad policy. And I think that that's what we're seeing here. And it's not to say that the bureaucrats who are doing this work are bad people, but the policy um, if the idea is to save money and not get people out of poverty, then that's what we're going to get. And that's that's what we're seeing. And AI is speeding up that process and scaling it up to, to affect a lot of people. I agree with all of that, but I, I think it's it's um, it's more fundamental than that. Mitch Daniels was the governor of Indiana when he did this. He wanted to privatize everything. He, he privatized the toll road, right? Mitch Daniels reflects this, this kind of, um, you know, neoliberal idea that government is bad. Government doesn't, is, is at best inefficient. It doesn't, um, it can undermine people's freedom. It, it wastes people's resources that they worked hard to achieve. And so if that's your argument, if that's where you start from, then what else are you looking for in terms of social policy? What you're pointing out is if the ethos, the idea, the orientation is to save money, I think it's also important to note that we are willing to save money in certain areas for certain people more so than others. And so I think one of the key points that I took away from what, what, what Virginia had to say was that we are more likely to see these kinds of maneuvers, these uh, additional constraints and low rights environments. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a really good phrase. By yeah, the way. I thought that was really helpful and really good. And, yeah. and the fact of the matter is, is that Americans are willing to allocate rights unequally. It's OK mm-hmm. um, in many people's mind to surveil poor people because poverty is associated with bad morals. Mm-hmm. We see this in black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why we're willing. People are willing to support expensive drug testing programs for welfare recipients 
but not legislators who Mm -hmm. are also getting our taxpayer dollars, even though nearly all the drug tests come back negative. I I think it's really important to note when and where and who we're willing to save money on when this business of saving taxpayer dollars becomes central to the, the, the goals of the policy. We don't see that for middle-class people. We don't see that in Social Security. We don't see that in Medicare, but we do see it in Medicaid. So I think that it's important for us to keep in mind um, that we're willing to tolerate bad policy and bad outcomes for certain groups and not others. I just want to raise one other point that I think is interesting, and I'm not sure I agree with it. And that's uh, when uh, Eubanks was talking about how in these low rights environments, government will often start or or introduce these kind of um, incremental diminishment of civil rights with the, with the argument or at least the implication that then they will move on to you know the broader population and on the one hand i think that is just wrong for the reasons that we just said i mean i don't think you know once you you know i think people will or our americans will generally accept this kind of low uh, rights environment For poor people, they're not going to accept it for themselves, and they will be up in arms about it. When she mentioned this this idea about experimenting in low rights environment, that that really creeped me out because, you know, we talk about U.S. democracy being an experiment and states being laboratories. We use this language of... Mm -hmm trying things in science and scaling up if it works. We use this language all of the time and we mostly use it in a laudatory way. You feel a little bit that it's not going to scale up to the middle class folks and to non-low rights environments. I think the fact of the matter is that the data is already being collected. Uh Uh-huh. Right. The the information is already there. There are restaurants that do not take cash. There are right. You look you say to your friend, oh, I think I want to get a new patio table and it shows up in your Instagram feed. Right. I mean, there are we're already setting the table now, whether the, the government is going to take this information. I mean, we see parties using it. They have tons of data on us, which is how they can target us and their campaigns, right? Um, And I think that what we're seeing now, I think that's what this moment that we're seeing is that the norms that we care and love about privacy, about democratic norms, about process, these are all being slowly chipped away. And, you know, what they say about the frog and the, mm-hmm. you know, if it, if you slowly warm up the water, it'll boil. And I, I wouldn't be surprised. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the water is actually warmer than we already, than we, than, think. Than we actually think it is. Well, I'm really glad to see that Candace is reflecting the <laughs> underlying sense of pessimism <laughs> that makes democracy work the podcast that it is. <laughs> and why people just flock to hear us and feel better about the whole democratic <laughs> experiment. Anyway, no, I think that's a really, really interesting point and one that I hadn't really thought about. I was just thinking about it in terms of government. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for um, to Jennifer, a good interview, uh, as usual. 
And uh, thanks for the conversation, Candace. I really enjoyed it. Same here. Take care, y'all. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.